The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. This is our year. This is the year we will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And before I go any further, hey, Yoshiko Dart, shout out to you, my friend, and wife of the late Justin Dart, who I know is still with us and will be thinking about him on that anniversary. You know, we have those that fight for all of us in this country, especially with discrimination and and even horrible situations for children who are going through restraints and different issues. But I've got to tell you, I got to know Kurt Decker years ago, Um, I love him. He is the real deal. He means it. He cares. And he'll be talking about the National Disability Rights Network that he is the executive director of, national leader in the disability community. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joyce. It's great to be back with you. Well, it's great to have you on again. Um, how about for our listeners across the country, why don't you start first by telling everyone what the National Disability Right Rights Network represents? Well, the NDRN, National Disability Rights Network, uh, based in Washington, is the voluntary membership association of the protection and advocacy and client assistance programs. And these are federally created and federally funded programs uh, since the mid-70s, uh, and they exist in every state and territory, and they are authorized by Congress to provide legally-based advocacy for people with disabilities. And we here at the national office uh, provide support uh, through training and technical assistance and also make sure that the administration and Congress is aware of the good work that these agencies are doing every day throughout the country. Wow. Now, how many agencies are there approximately? Well, there are 57 PNAs uh, in, as I said, every state and territory, including uh, a program in the Southwest uh, for the Native American population in the Hopi and Navajo reservation. So we are uh, have a 57th program, as well as all of the territories, such as Guam, Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, these are formula grant programs, so the programs are funded uh, based on their size. And so, obviously, California, New York, Texas are larger programs. We also have uh, about 20 agencies um, that are not part of the PNA uh, in 20 states that provide advocacy for clients of vocational rehabilitation. In the other 37 states, it's provided by the PNA agency itself. Well, you know, if you had to describe um, to a person listening to the show today, what are the main things you provide for people with disabilities? What would that be? 
Well, let me just say, Joyce, first of all, we are very fortunate in that we have some pretty broad legal authority. We have the ability to provide the full range of legal advocacy as well as non-legal advocacy for anyone with a disability who comes to our office. We also enjoy some very strong access authority, which allows us to go into facilities uh, and schools where people with uh, disabilities reside, work, uh, and are, are being educated to investigate abuse and neglect. And it's a very powerful authority where we can uh, demand to see uh, clients, their records, uh, to go into the facility and look at what's happening. And it's a very important uh, authority to make sure that the most vulnerable people in the disability community receive that kind of protection uh, and oversight. But in terms of other issues, we are really involved in just about every major issue affecting people with disabilities. We are obviously a major um, supporter of special education. We represent probably 20,000 children a year in the variety of issues um, that they, the kids with disabilities face in special education. As I said earlier, we represent people uh, working with the vocational rehabilitation system. We are very involved in uh, making sure that Medicaid uh, is provided to this population in a fair and balanced way. Uh, we are uh, looking at employment, not only uh, employment for uh, people with disabilities, um, but also those people who are in sheltered and segregated employment. Um, we have been uh, the leaders in working uh, with Amtrak to make sure that Amtrak uh, is accessible, as well as airlines. Uh, and we're now looking at um, how we can help the Veterans Administration uh, provide uh, oversight um, and protection from abuse uh, to veterans who find themselves in uh, veterans facilities. Wow, you really do cover a lot. So you're providing legal expertise to people with disabilities at no cost if, if it is appropriate. That's correct. We are fortunate that we can have a full continuum of services. So you don't necessarily have to have a legal issue to uh, get assistance from us, but certainly uh, we are and try to use our somewhat limited resources uh, to provide that kind of legal advocacy that we're, we're the only, uh, really only game in town um, that can really provide that. And we are not, with, uh, we're not a poverty program. Uh, anyone with a disability can access our services. Oh, okay. doesn't matter what level you are. Uh, you do not have to be in a disadvantaged situation. That's right. Now, I will say this, that generally when, when folks with resources come to us, we'll try to find them uh, private counsel or some other assistance and try to reserve our resources for those people who are really uh, the most disadvantaged. And as you know, Joyce, uh, we have a terrible problem in the disability community with, with a large percentage of people with disabilities who are poor uh, and who are dependent on benefits. And so we do want to focus on that population um, because we're the only resource they might have. Uh, so someone listening to the show right now, Kurt, if in fact they uh, have some issue where they feel they're being discriminated against, um, whatever state they're in, how, what would be the process, and if they do contact a PNA, what, what should they be prepared with before they call? <laughs> That's a very good question, Joyce. Let me say a couple of things. As I said, we are, I think, unique in that we are across disability. Through our various sources of funding, we can provide services to anyone with a disability. So it's 
one-stop shopping. Uh, a person with a disability doesn't have to worry about what their label is or what their particular disability is. But I will say this. We are funded, as I said, by the federal government, um, but near, not nearly to the extent of the need. And so I would say to someone calling um, the P&A in their state, and by the way, they can find out about where the P&A is in their state. We have different names in different places. They can check the NDRN website. But they need to know that because of our resource limitations, we do have to set priorities, and their issue may not rise to the level of the priorities that their particular P&A has set. Um, they also need to know that um, their issue may not um, be legally you know, of merit. Uh, this, the particular statute or program they're looking for you know, may not uh, accommodate what they need. And I hope people would understand that if we tell them um, that you're not on our priority or you really don't have a case um, that we can solve, but that's not that we're not concerned about their situation. Uh, uh, it's because the law maybe has not kept up um, with the, the needs of this population. So hopefully they will also get some kind of information and referral, even if we can't bring them in as a full-blown case. So I'm hoping that people will sort of understand, you know, the limitations on our agency and know that we will try to do everything we can to assist them uh, within our resources. And when they do call, should they sort of be prepared you know, with information versus just calling and saying, I have a problem? Well, certainly the more information that we can have at intake, the, the easier and the quicker we would able, be able to respond. Uh, and so uh, the facts, you know, what happened, you know, a good chronology of what they've experienced, what other efforts they may have made before they came to us uh, are really important issues. And that would just make the process so much simpler um, because those are the kinds of questions we'd be then asking them if they don't have that information uh, at their fingertips. Yeah, and getting back to a point Kurt made here, you know, they have so many people to call in. And if they say, well, you know, they can't help you right now, that doesn't mean they don't care. Keep in mind, there are a lot of people calling in and some with very serious issues. So I, I just want to... Uh, reiterate that because I know Kurt, but I know other people that work uh, in the NDRN family, and I assure you they all care very much. Um, okay, before we go to break, here's a question for you from Miami from Ted. Uh, Kurt, thank you very much for leading the way for all of us living with disabilities. Is there an age limit for people to call? Absolutely not. We are from um, cradle uh, to grave, if you will. Uh, we, have, uh, uh, we, we represent, as I said, the full range of disabilities and also the full range of ages. And uh, the, there is no limitation. And clearly, as people with disabilities live longer, we're seeing an uptick in, in older uh, Americans with disabilities calling us. And we're working very collaboratively with some of the aging programs to make sure that you know, that, that crossover between aging and disability are, um, is identified and understood. Right. And so no matter what the situation is, keep in mind, feel free to call in uh, because they are there to help you. All right, everyone, we're going to get ready to go to break, but 
if you just joined us, we're talking to Kurt Decker, Executive Director of the <coughs> National Disability Rights Network, a champion, a fighter for people with disabilities in this country, a wonderful person, and a good friend. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back with Kurt. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S. and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We are talking to Kurt Decker, the Executive Director of the National Disability Rights Network, NDRN. And while we were on break, you know, we were talking about a few issues. And I noticed, Kurt, that you said earlier in the show that Secretary Tom Perez uh, was at a recent event you had and spoke. And as a matter of fact, uh, April 21st, he's on this show. So, you know, how did that go? I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now uh, with concern. You know, what is NDRN's role, and what did Secretary Perez have to say? Well, Joyce, we have a great relationship with Secretary Perez. Uh, formerly, his prior role as the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Justice, we were, our agencies, because of our legal mandates worked very closely and still do with the Department of Justice uh, to be uh, on the ground. Often we're the ones who start a lawsuit and the Justice Department will join us or vice versa. And so we knew that uh, 
Secretary Perez brought to the Department of Labor a real commitment to disability issues. Uh, and uh, at that meeting, he talked about all of the areas, you know, that Department of Labor um, has jurisdiction over. So we did talk about uh, sheltered workshops and, and, and the wage and hour division under his uh, authority uh, with the 14C issue. Um, we talked about the companionship rule, um, which is, you know, causing some uh, disagreement in the disability community. But I believe that our role there is to make sure that um, the good part of that rule, which hopefully will make uh, the, the salaries for personal care attendants, you know, stronger and better so we'll get good quality personal care attendants, that that part will work well. And then the concern that some people have that uh, individuals won't be able to afford to have uh, the number of hours uh, of personal care because the rates will go up, we need to be on the ground in each state making sure that the per diems are raised so no one uh, is hurt by this rule. It's a well-intentioned and I think an important rule, and we just have to make sure that, uh, as so much in our community in the past, that good intentions don't go awry. Yes, I agree with that. I, too, am very supportive uh, of that rule, and I just want to tell you why. It's because I can't talk about 14C and complain if we aren't paying everyone else equally. Plus, my mother passed away uh, from Alzheimer's two years ago, and I certainly know what it's like to try to have care and not good care and go through that whole horrible thing. So that, that you know, I have personal reasons for this. But... You know, I feel Secretary Perez will, in fact, um, not allow harm to come to people, but I'm glad that that's what you'll be doing because that way you can keep everything honest, Kurt. Yes, we made a commitment to him that we will be watching what's happening on the ground and trying to make sure that the benefits of this rule, you know, are felt uh, by the vast majority of people with disabilities and that any potential harm uh, is avoided uh, we may it'll be a, it could be a tough lift in some states who are you know having serious budget uh, uh, problems, but that's what I think the strength of my network. We're out there in every state and territory, and we know what's going on. We have the facts, we have the cases and the clients, so we can make a very strong argument if we find people you know in harm's way. Yeah, that that is awesome. Uh, well, you know when I mentioned 14C, of course. Everyone seems to be talking about this now. You know, it seemed to really heat up over the past year with yeah. people being more vocal about it. But I just want to say that I remember reading uh, a letter or, or uh, you know, that you put together that you sent out um, about 14C and about how people with disabilities should not be uh, in slavery, and I will never forget that letter. I thought it was absolutely, you know, so well written and uh, and so courageous uh, for you to, you know, stand up and stand tall and, uh, you know, speak what you thought in behalf of people with disabilities. And now, of course, many people, you know, are now being very vocal about this, but You've been a strong advocate for ending 14C for a long time. So, you know, I have listeners I've noticed that have called in, and they don't totally understand 
14C. So could you explain what it is and then why you think it should end? I'd be happy to. Again, the 14C section of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was passed in the late 30s, was a very well-intentioned idea. It was hoped that private businesses uh, would hire people with disabilities, returning veterans, etc., uh, and be allowed to bring them into the workforce, pay them less than the minimum wage uh, in order to get them into the workforce and see that they could be good, uh, fully you know, uh, contributing workers. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Uh, what did happen over the ensuing decades was that lots of disability groups uh, created workshops, sheltered workshops, segregated workshops, where only people with disabilities you know, work, and again, the concept was that these people would come into the workshop, receive training, and then be brought out into competitive employment in the general public. That didn't happen, and what we're faced with now in, um, in 2015 is hundreds of thousands of people, primarily with intellectual disabilities, in these segregated uh, workshops receiving sub-minimum wage, and uh, many of whom we know uh, have the ability to work in competitive employment. Many of them had other jobs and now are in sheltered workshops because of the economy, whatever. And so we did uh, raise this issue several years ago with a report that you mentioned where we really uh, tried to take uh, the the veil off of this idea uh, that these folks only could work in these very segregated uh, and sheltered and sub-minimum wage entities. Uh, it's, um, and I, I'm gratified that as a result of that report and a follow-up report, it does seem to have now become uh, a really important topic of conversation. What was interesting, uh, when we worked with our, our, our colleagues in the civil rights community around the whole issue of raising the minimum wage, they were shocked to hear that there were 500,000 people with disabilities that were paid less than the minimum wage. Uh, and that that could even happen in this country. Now, you know, in balance, um, often these are the only places that certain people can go. Many family members um, want their children to stay in in these places because they feel that it's safe and comfortable. But we really do need to challenge the system uh, and and question whether uh, these people really couldn't, with the proper supports and training, not find work in uh, the community at competitive rates and so we are working to that end. This will take time. We're not out to close all sheltered workshops in the near term, but we are working on various levels with congressional authority under the new uh, WIOA, the Rehabilitation Act, uh, through litigation, through complaints to the Wage and Hour Division. Um, we, are, uh, we have many of my programs are now out monitoring those places and asking people why they're there, how do they get there, uh, what they're being paid, uh, and really trying to um, shatter this idea that, that not everyone can work. We really have to take, I think, start from the principle that everyone can work. We did it in the ADA when we said the entire country should be accessible. We do it in education where we say all children deserve a free and appropriate education. And now in the employment context, we need to say all people can work. And if we start there, then I think we'll begin to see progress in moving people out of these um, sheltered, segregated environments. Uh, it really is 
uh, a, a linchpin of community integration so that you live in the community, you work in the community, uh, and you um, socialize in the community. And until that happens, we really don't have true community integration. And and how is it going? Are we moving forward to close the show? I mean, how how are we moving along? Has that happened? It's it's happening uh, throughout the country. Again, I think uh, the providers are being challenged, and some of them, I think, are making very good faith efforts to try to look at a different business model. Again, the Department of Justice weighed in in Rhode Island and uh, uh, developed a settlement agreement that the, the uh, that they're going to be closing shelter workshops in Rhode Island over the next three years. Uh, the governor of New York has also said that they're not going to let new uh, people come into the shelter workshops. We do have a terrible problem of after spending all of this money on special education, many of these kids go right into a sheltered workshop um, rather than out into competitive employment, which is exactly what we've been preparing them for all these years. Um, we have a court case in uh, in Oregon, where the judge said that um, the that employment is part of the Olmstead principle, and I think people know that the Olmstead principle is about the idea that segregation of people with disabilities is discrimination, and it came out in the residential context, but now we've got a court saying it's also uh, in the employment context. So we we're making progress. Uh, I've been meeting with some of the larger providers who I think are getting the message. As I said, we're not going to close these places down overnight uh, and put people at risk or on the street, uh, uh, but we are you know, really putting the pressure on the system to rethink this model and to really go back to the original concept that this was a training, short-term training opportunity to get people with disabilities ready to go into the competitive market. Well, I'm hopeful that we're going to see a lot of progress in the next couple of years. Yeah, and just so, listeners, just so you understand this, we're talking people that are being paid uh, $0.25, cents. Uh, and not everyone, but I'm saying that when I tell people that it is beneath minimum wage, just as Kurt said, they tell me, well, that we wouldn't be allowed to do that in this country. But, yes, we do do that. Uh, and my question to you, Kurt, is the question that I hear all the time to me, which is, and what are you going to do with people that can't work? What's supposed to happen to them? Well, I'm an incrementalist uh, and, uh, and a pragmatist. And as I said, why I think it's so important to start from the premise that everyone can work is let's get two or 300,000 of this 500,000 out of the workshops into the community. And then we can work with those people who are remaining who may have severe disabilities, uh, that don't allow them to find a job. But I know experts who think that if you match the person to the job, you can generally find something for just about everybody to do. And, of course, in the sheltered workshop environment, you're basically stuck with the contracts that come in to the workshop. So if you're not, if you don't have good dexterity, mobile you know, um, uh, dexterity, and the contract says you're supposed to be, you know, putting... Uh, shredding documents, and that's not something you can do. That's what you get to do, and then you're rated um, on your performance. Well, clearly you're not going to do very well, uh, and therefore you get paid, as you said, sometimes 25 cents, 30 cents, a dollar an hour. And what we're hoping we can move to is a system of finding the right fit for the person with a disability and make sure that um, they are um, 
getting the training to do the kind of work that they can do and then make the maximum amount of money. Well, yes, and my other question is, if in fact they are uh, whatever it is they're making, boxes, you know, brooms, all these things, if they can do, why can't they do these, not that job, but they obviously have the ability to do something or they wouldn't be working there. And, you know, when people say, oh, yeah, well, you have epilepsy, Joyce, what about people that just can't do anything, they can't work, and they wouldn't have anything? My answer to that is why are we always looking at extremes? Well, the other thing is we've also come a long way with assistive technology. What we're finding in our reviews of sheltered workshops, very little assistive technology being utilized in these workshops. And when it is uh, given to somebody, we then follow up and find out that the workshop isn't letting them use it. So we think that you know, through smartphones and iPads and this whole burgeoning of assistive technology that's out there would really increase the productivity of some of the people with the most severe disabilities, and they're not getting access to that. So that's another role that we play uh, because we do have funding specifically to make sure that assistive technology is available to the full range of people with disabilities. So we're on... Uh, working very um, uh, hard to make sure that that kind of assistive technology is available to the folks in sheltered workshops and see how that can improve their productivity. Well, and yes, let's also remember this, incremental, just as you said. If you could start by getting a large number of people back to work paying taxes, I assure you we could continue working for all levels of people. But right now, you know, uh, I have met people. I have no doubt they could get a job, none. Uh, but, you know, if you're told you can't, hey, that's no different than high school students with disabilities that I mentor and teach a class to who are told they won't be able to get a job, you know, other than, you know, living on uh, SSDI or Social Security or, I mean, there are people that are told you won't make it. Well, if you're told that, you're going to think that. So, you know, I am totally with you on this, and I hope that we see change, continue to see change in that area. But right now, hey, we got to go to break. If you just joined us, we are talking to Kurt Decker, Executive Director of the National Disability Rights Network, NDRN. We'll be right back. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. 
At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S., and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We are talking to Kurt Decker, Executive Director at NDRN. Uh, And we have another question here from a Mary in New York. Uh, and the question is, Mr. Decker, thank you so much for what you do for all of us. May I ask you what caused you to decide to be an advocate? Well, thank you for that question, Mary. Uh, I've been fortunate in that even though I went to a relatively conservative law school many years ago, I uh, ended up joining VISTA and was assigned to the Baltimore Legal Aid Bureau uh, for one year. Uh, I was just going to do it for a year and then go back up to New York and be a corporate lawyer. And luckily for me, I really, the the plight of people in poverty, people on food stamps, Medicaid, uh, and welfare assistance really struck me, and I stayed and never left. Uh, And after five years at Legal Aid, I was able, I was asked to run a child abuse and neglect program, another really important uh, issue in our country. And then I got a call one day saying there's this new disability rights uh, system that's just been created by Congress. This was in the late 70s. And I was asked to take that over and start it up. And I said, I don't have a lot of disability experience. And they responded, well, we just need someone who can get this program running. And when I got there, I was, again, uh, fortunate that these legal issues uh, IDA had just come uh, into being. We had Section 504, uh, and I was just um, really taken with um, the variety of issues and legal issues and, frankly, the plight of so many people with disabilities. At that time, we had many, many thousands of people in big congregate institutions. That's changed dramatically over the last 30 years. So I've been very lucky uh, to get uh, into this work and into this field without having any real personal experience yet uh, uh, with um, having a disability. Oh, that, well, that is amazing how you went, you stayed, and you seemed to go through different civil rights groups. But thank goodness you ended up with people with disabilities. So, uh, Kurt, again, when we were talking at break, something that is really that I'm passionate about is 
seeing a stop to restraint. What I'm talking about, folks, is that in our schools today, I know this is hard to believe, but the restraining of students with disabilities, you would just be shocked how this goes on when the person has a behavioral disability, epilepsy, autism, you know, whatever it is, um, what they are allowed to do is just extremely horrifying. So I thought, could we talk about that, Kurt? Maybe you could give us some examples and then tell us what you're doing to try to stop it. I'd be glad to. Uh, This is another one of those issues where I don't think we were were aware of it. We just didn't imagine that this could happen. We were certainly aware of the use of restraints and seclusion in adults, in large congregate facilities like mental hospitals. But again, I think the beauty of my network is about five or six years ago, we start getting individual reports from the various P&A agencies about children who were being harmed, in one case actually killed, um, when a teacher inappropriately tried to restrain the child because of some behavior problem. And we went out to our network and said, well, how, who else is hearing about this? And we were flooded with our 50 agencies coming back, all with several, each of them with several stories. And so again, we put together a report, you know, quite you know, striking that this was an epidemic in the country. And and my theory is that if I have 50, 55 programs all seeing the same thing, then this is something that is, um, needs to be addressed and may may not be, you know, pure research um, uh, or data collection. It is a good measure of a problem that's in this country. And as a result of our report, uh, Congress called for a GAO report. They supported what we found. They found even more. Uh, we worked with Congress uh, and have tried to get a federal bill banning the use of seclusion and restraint with children with disabilities. And that's been a very hard slog. We were very close several times, but there's a great deal of pushback from the education community uh, about uh, their sense that they need this technique to work with kids with disabilities. And it's just quite um, amazing that, I mean, that you find kindergarten children, you know, being restrained and secluded, secluded because the teachers have not been trained, we think, properly on other, you know, less invasive, less severe techniques to manage the behavior of some of these kids. Now, some of these children do have some pretty um, uh, strong uh, behavior issues and can do some things um, that would appear to be dangerous, but our theory is that you, when it gets to that situation, it's too late. You've had to you know, involve teachers and their aides and the school in you know, good, positive behavior support training, so they now had to diffuse a situation before it gets to the point where there's someone at risk. But we have seen children tied to chairs, stuck in closets, sat on by teachers and crushed, uh, and uh, it continues to happen. And we are looking for reporting so we know that it's, you know, we can document how it's happening and fighting, we hope, uh, in support of teachers to get the kind of training they need. Um, and, uh, I mean, we just had a story recently where uh, a mother saw her son tying up his sister uh, in the backyard. And uh, she said, what are you doing? And he said, well, this is what the teacher does every time um, she uh, is frustrated with my sister. 
So, you know, teachers are, are almost, you know, modeling bad behavior and other children, not just children with disabilities, but the entire school is learning um, that this is okay uh, to seclude or restrain a child with a disability if they're not just sitting quietly with their hands folded at their desk. So it's a serious issue. The, the, the um, Department of Education, Office of Special Education, has issued uh, guidelines about this. <clears throat> the Office of Civil Rights and Education is now collecting data on, on seclusion restraint, and we've just seen a devastating report that not only is this higher use in children with disabilities, but it's astronomical in children with disabilities of color. So there's a disproportionality uh, in this, uh, this technique that really comes down heavily on minority children with disabilities, and we've really got to intervene and try to stop this. So you're meaning, even to the kindergarten age, if a child will say they have autism uh, and quote-unquote act out or epilepsy uh, and, you know, to the teacher they say they have to be restrained, whatever it is, when you say restrained, you're meaning they are able to do something physical to the child. Absolutely. Uh, as I, we have tried in several, in many states, we are trying to get, we're not only working nationally at a, at a federal uh, solution of the problem, but my agencies are very involved at the state level trying to get state laws, and they get an incredible amount of pushback. When we try to do a simple bill, I consider it simple, of just banning the use of prone restraints, because that is when you know, kids can really be uh, damaged and injured when you're throwing a child down on the floor and either sitting on them or holding them down, uh, we get incredible pushback from the education community saying, oh, no, we have to have this ability or we won't be able to manage behavior in the school. And it is shocking that they uh, can't see their way to other methods of working with kids with behavior problems other than throwing them on the floor and sitting on them. Which is not a way to crush the child, but with epilepsy is absolutely a way that you would be able to kill the child because, of course, when you're having a seizure, uh, you know, you're doing something like this, the child could suffocate, uh, asphyxiate. There are so many things that could happen, and it is just... Also, when you said seclusion... I assume you mean putting them in a room by themselves. I know a young man with epilepsy all the way to the seventh grade where they locked him in a closet. Oh, yes. We have uh, too many examples of children in closets or special rooms that were created uh, that are segregated. Uh, and uh, we just found uh, in a juvenile facility in Iowa concrete boxes that the children were put in there and if they acted out and they were uh, and their punishment was to take away their special education services. So this is something that is rampant around the country and again I think there we're, we're because we've raised the awareness of this issue and because of these you know, federal policies and the data collection we're starting to see some school districts start to look at other techniques and other training to try to you know give their staff um, the kinds of tools they need to work, you know, appropriately with this population. Now, Joyce, one of the issues I'm concerned about, and this is always where, you know, safety sometimes comes into clash with some of our services, 
as a result of some of these terrible tragedies in places like Newtown, Connecticut, you know, there's a big push to put school resource officers in schools under the theory uh, that somehow that will protect the kids and make the schools safer. We're very concerned that these are basically police who have no training uh, and that the kids with disabilities will be the ones that will <clears throat> run afoul of these uh, SROs uh, in the schools. And so we are very, very concerned about this uh, burgeoning utilization of police in schools when we don't have counselors uh, and aides and well-trained special education teachers. So to go that route, you know, is is a disturbing trend in the country at the moment. That is disturbing. An example of that would be, I was with, uh, I was at an epilepsy conference and this young man stood up and literally started walking very fast around the room, around the whole hall. And as he went, he grabbed a, a person who actually works with people with epilepsy and just kept, kept pulling her with him. Now, he was having a complex partial seizure, but you could see that uh, officer, something terrible happening there. Absolutely, absolutely. People because who are not, not aware of those kinds of behaviors and realize what triggered them and then what are the appropriate ways of, you know, diffusing that situation, that's a recipe for disaster. Yes. Well, Kurt, here you are. You've worked so long in this area. Um, a question that I have that I'm interested in hearing the answer to is, well, what do you hope your legacy is? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And I've been doing this for a long time, so I do think about those issues. Um, I, I really do love this network, and, what, and I love it because, for, for several reasons, I think it is a good combination of legal and non-legal advocacy so that we can work with a person with a disability at whatever point uh, they're in uh, the system and where they need help. And, and, I, and also, I under, I've learned, uh, and I think people probably know this, that you can pass wonderful laws like the ADA uh, and the IDA, but if you don't have uh, on-the-ground daily vigilance, monitoring the ability to provide advocacy services both at the individual level and systemic level, um, these are just paper uh, bills that don't really make a difference in people's lives. So I hope my legacy is this system that I've helped build over the last 30 years so that it continues and is out there making sure that all these wonderful statutes and laws that we're passing really make it down to the individual person's level and really gives them the quality of life they deserve. Oh, well, that is a, I think that will happen. I think it is happening right now. So, you know, that is a, that, that is something that I know will happen. Um, Kurt, what is your website if someone wants to follow what you're doing? It's www.ndrn.org, N National Disability Rights Network, NDRN. Uh, because I had a question that just came through here. Uh, about that uh, restraint, what, what could someone do to help you? What could people do to help you? Well, what's important is to make sure that we are aware that it's happening. We have had uh, many parents call us and say, I didn't, my child didn't want to go to school. I would cry, fall on the floor, would do anything, then leave the house, and I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I found out that she was being or he was being restrained or secluded in the school, that's why he wasn't going. I didn't even know it was happening. So 
just being aware, talking to your children, uh, your children with a disability, without a disability, and find out whether these things are actually happening in your particular school uh, and then let us know about that and report it. Uh, so I think that kind of um, sunshine um, is one of the best disinfectants. And then we would have to get involved with the school system to try to say, you've got to do something different uh, than what you're doing. But just being aware that this can exist uh, is a very important first step. Um, uh, yeah, so I hope that everyone listening does that because it does not help to just sit back and say, oh, this is terrible. You've got to take action. Well, Kurt, look, you've been doing this a long time. You've built an unbelievable organization. You've already accomplished so many things working with uh, the government and presidents, you know, just to make things go uh, so that there's quality of life and protection for people with disabilities. But if you had to say what your greatest accomplishments have been, what would you say? (laughs) Well, um, I've been around a long time, and I do think there's uh, something to be said for sticking around and making sure uh, that uh, things get done. Uh, A lot of the uh, issues we're talking about are very intractable problems that take many decades uh, to solve. Uh, and, and the same with my organization. We started back in the late 70s, uh, very small, just representing people with intellectual disabilities. And over the last 30 years, I've been able to add programs for people with mental illness, people with traumatic brain injury, creating this cross-disability program, as, as I said at the very beginning, uh, to, so that a person with a disability does not have to worry about their label or their diagnosis. They can come to the PNA, and assuming the PNA has the resources, um, can get assistance with whatever they're facing. And I, I feel lucky and privileged that I've been able to have that opportunity uh, and that I've been um, pretty dogged about um, getting um, that done. I'm pretty well known in Washington for, oh, there he comes again, wanting more money and another P&A for another type of problem. So uh, that's okay. Uh, I always tell people when they... They say that to me. Tell my, my president and my board of directors um, that that's what I'm doing because I think that's really, you know, what's, what's really important is to, to keep this system going, to build it, to enhance it, and, and make sure, you know, that all of this wonderful promise that we have with services and civil rights legislation for people with disabilities really is happening at the very grassroots level. Right, and and uh, you keep going for that money, Kurt. You keep on going, yes, and you are, I'd say you are not only known in D.C., you're known nationally for the wonderful work you're doing, and uh, I just want to thank you for everything you're doing and uh, let you know how much I admire you and what you've accomplished, uh, and just keep on doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Joyce. That's very kind. But I have to say, I think I'm the beneficiary of all of this work. It's been a, a great ride, and uh, it, it's, 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 it's great to be able to be able to participate in this incredible community uh, and and watch it, you know, accomplish so many great things and, and change the face of our society, which is really gratifying. Yes. Well, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today, Kurt? Well, I would say. Again, as someone who has not experienced a disability themselves, I always tell people that I think the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, is for everybody. 
not just for people with disabilities, but for those of us who may develop a disability. Uh, we all want that protection and know that, uh, you know, this is something, this is the group, that, or the minority group that we all can join. Um, and so these protections uh, that some people may say, oh, it's very expensive or it's burdensome, you don't know that this is something that you really are going to need for you or your relative, family member. And, and so, uh, and, and as we talked earlier, um, if we can get people with disabilities into the workforce, off of the roles, Social Security roles and Medicaid, and get them into self-sufficient, it'll benefit all of society. So this is not just uh, all of this work that we're doing, uh, that you're doing, Joyce, and, and that we're doing here, uh, isn't just about people with disabilities. It's about making our whole society you know, more efficient, more cost-effective, um, and more uh, open and welcoming to the full range of people in our society. So I hope people you know, don't think of this as just, oh, we have to help those poor disabled people. This is about helping everybody in the country. Yes, and that could be at some time, that person thinking that. Because as I always remind people, you can join this group at any time uh, in your life, and I hope it would not take that, for you to remember, just as Kurt said, we are all Americans, not to be marginalized, and what's good for us is good for you. I agree with you 100%, Kurt. Well, Kurt, thank you very much, Executive Director of NDRN. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Well, we end every show with a quote from someone that has impacted the lives of others in our community, and I felt this was... Uh, very fitting for what we're talking about today, and that is persons with intellectual disabilities have faced the most significant barriers and the lowest employment participation of any group, said Senator Tom Harkin. And, folks, that's what we've got to change. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you all next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.